All right, welcome to Useful Idiots, the existential terror edition. Um, I'm Matt Taibbi, and I'm Katie Halper. And where are you, Katie? You've, you've changed your background. Yeah. So the backgrounds have become very important in this. Uh, they have, yeah. I'm yeah. now in my the same house, which is my parents' place, um, away, uh, far, far away, two and a half hours away from New York City. I don't know why I keep saying the the distance. Right. It's um, almost like you want people to find you and no, break into I your don't. home. I'm just showing people. Honestly, it's because As I the usually crow flies, say exactly how much time would it take to get to your doorstep right now? Well, it's because I usually call this place upstate. And then some people are like, oh, where's that Westchester? And then other people. So I want to show it's really it's it's not just like Mamaronek or something, but it's also technically not upstate. So I feel like this is an honest way to I want to speak truth to curiosity you know you've heard speak truth to power there's also speak truth to curiosity are those your books or your parents my parents books there's also uh, a troll if you can see right there like one of those trolls and then oh i feel like i just me too the troll and then in the corner maybe i'll make an appearance later i have a curious my dad my dad has a curious george i'm going to be honest about it my dad has a curious george and then there's a big um teddy bear yeah excellent it definitely adds a little panache to to the whole show. I mean, you, you look you look very bookish. Yeah. Uh, what other words could we use? Uh, uh, cultured, informed, cerebral, cerebral, literate, uh, enlightened, smug. Just kidding. Smug. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't think it's smug. You know, it's no, erudite. It's not. It's not yeah, I just wanted to. Yeah. A lot happened this week, obviously. Although. Not for a lot of people. Not a lot of people are just literally sitting in one place. No, yeah, we have a great show for you today. Unbelievable, amazing Unbelievable. interview. Unbelievable, yeah, Matt. This is real. You love this interview. Yeah. I mean, I did too, and it was with none other than drumroll, Adam, please, Adam McKay. Adam yeah, McKay. so uh, very funny. I, I actually had like a humor intimidation moment before this interview. Incredibly funny, smart, nice guy. I think I think it was probably our best interview that we've done. One of them, anyway. Now yeah. I know what it must be like for you to prepare to tape with me. I never, I have a new <laughs> yes, understanding I have that same, of that. Yeah. That same feeling every time you and I yeah. communicate. Yeah, really good talk. And we got a lot of stuff to get to this week. We're going to be introducing a couple new segments as well. Since we're, since we're home, we're gonna we're uh, we're gonna start making the best of the situation by adding a little creativity and spice to to this this show. Uh, we're gonna have a little interactive segment where people get to send questions in, and so we get to meet some of the people who listen to Useful Idiots, and uh, it's gonna be cool. So, without further ado, uh, Katie, what do you got for Democrats suck this week? All right, so for Democrats suck, we've talked about this before. How it's not an official Democrat, but it's like Democrat media, blue media, yeah. basically. So we have a great segment with Rachel Maddow. Uh, we can show the videotape of that. But just to set it up, this is uh it's from last week but but we're gonna make a point that hasn't been made before i believe dan if we could go to the videotape and this was clipped by jordan Sheridan, whose uh show is uh status quo yep. that we're talking about this primary we're talking about the coronavirus disaster in america's handling of it one of the things that is really serious public health consideration is what is going to happen with these primaries around the country and if one of the two remaining candidates in the race has what amounts to a de facto insurmountable lead. The f- if the race is going to continue all the way to the convention because the guy who's never going to catch up just wants to stay in the race because he's got his reasons of his own, it has a different weight now. It has a different cost now to make that sort of a decision than it would in any other year because these primaries are only going to continue to happen because Senator Sanders is going to stay in the race, even if he does have a de facto insurmountable lead. And so it will be his decision that 
forces these very difficult public health decisions on all of these states in terms of whether or not to go ahead with these primaries if there is no hope of him really seriously challenging for the nomination. You're so right to say that. And it's a, it's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. It's a, it is, um, but it's also the reality that we're living with right now. It's so important to talk about this. She makes such a good point. Um, so basically, uh, Rachel Maddow is saying that um, Bernie Sanders is has blood on his hands or will have blood on his hands unless he drops out of the primary. But a few interesting points about this. As Rachel Maddow, because she's a Rhodes Scholar and a very intelligent person, we've always maintained that on this show, as she knows, now to be fair, Brian Williams may not know this because he is not the sharpest um, knife in the drawer, but Rachel Maddow knows that when, when the primaries in the United States are not just about presidential elections, right? So let's say Bernie Sanders were to drop out. I'm not sure if she's proposing that no other primary races for Congress, governor, whatever, mayor, um, state level things, assembly people. I don't know if she thinks that those are also going to be canceled. <laughs> I mean, right? right. This is, yeah. this is a, a, as she always says about herself, she's rubs her hands together and she says she's like a, a politics. Oh, right. I never noticed that. She yeah, does she, do that. she does the hand rub. Yeah. That's a, she'll, nice, yeah. that's a nice uh, affectation. I like. Yeah. And she does know this. Now, I'm happy. I, I hope I can offer this on behalf of useful idiots, Matt. But if if Brian Williams wants to have like a short chat about primary, how, how our, our elections work, would you be willing to explain that to him with me, Matt? Yeah, we, we, we offer we offer our services to engage in a discussion about that. Yeah, to Brian Williams. We'll send him like a, some kind of middle school level uh, history book. So I love hearing her say this. And 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 Brian Williams goes, you're so right to say that. You're so right to say that. And she's as, like, as if you were so wrong to say that was an op is an option on that. Channel. I know as if Brian Williams would ever be like, I'm going to push back on that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right? Rachel, I like the premise, but I find some of the uh, ramifications uh, troubling. No. So and then Rachel Maddow's like, I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. And he's like, oh, I know. I know. <laughs> like, yeah. But well, let's also, go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And. It's funny because she kind of at the beginning starts out just insinuating. I mean, we all know who she's talking about, but she's like, because if one of them has an insurmount, de facto insurmountable lead, and then she just names the other one, you know, Sanders, right. for, and it kind of admonishes him for staying in. And what's so fascinating is that if these elections were public health risks, and they were, and we talked about this last week, and, and, and Tom Perez pushed forward with them, um, claiming that there would be these uh, safety measures put in. And I interviewed Abshir Omar, I think I mentioned this, who was observing these elections and said that not a single site he went to, and he went to over a dozen sites in Illinois, not a single one was complying with CDC recommendations, which I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I just can't believe it. this has gotten so little coverage. He said that People were not wiping down pens. We're not wiping down the voting machines. And there's documentation. We talked about this last week. You see people standing very close to each other. Right. So if Rachel Maddow were so concerned, and Brian Williams will pretend he's not just, yeah. If they were so concerned, why didn't they ask the governors who they spoke to about why they were holding these primaries? And, and the idea that it's a public health risk to have primaries at all, so we need to cancel the primary and end it, but as opposed to there is another step, which is which a lot of people did, including the Ohio governor, despite the wishes of Tom Paris, which is that you can postpone the primaries. Right. right. 
And yep. and there's this argument because I don't think Dems off some Dems, some blue media people really are incapable of thinking of things outside of the context of what would Trump do and then doing the opposite. Right. People keep saying like, oh, well, if we move them, it's going to it's going to, you know, what precedent is that going to set? And then Trump's going to try to move the general election. But if they don't move them and there are health things that happen, Trump would you could use that anyway to justify it. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of contradictions here. And yeah, it'd be interesting to see what their reaction would be when if something like this were pulled in a, in a different context with a different political reality, obviously. I think the, the larger issue for me on this is when something like coronavirus or 9-11 or whatever happens, you really see where people are because the the immediate instinct to use a crisis for whatever your own personal um, to, to advance whatever your own agenda is. Yeah. You see this on multiple different levels and this isn't just as an example of it. Like, okay, let's, how can we reframe this argument to kick this person out of the race using, using this crisis as a, as a right. you know, point of contention in the argument. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. And also the other part of this is that you, as you, as you point out, the elections are going to be held anyway. They have right legally, right, uh, for, for a bunch of reasons. They're going to be held at one point or another. Logistically, they have to be held. And, you know, at, there are lawyers right now working on alternatives that are right. safe. Um, that, you know, I think that's what people should be calling for. Right. But, but the, the issue for, for, for these folks is they don't want to delay the, the issue because, as we've seen, there, there could be issues with the performance uh, of one or one or the other of the candidates. Right. Uh, people could be uh, moved to change their minds because of these situations. Because one went into hiding while the other one was out and about. And yeah, having, there could yeah. be a lot of different things. And I, I get the argument that we, you know, we shouldn't have the, the elections right now, but that, that you shouldn't you shouldn't go straight to he should drop out and we should just, among other things, we still have to have the convention and Biden is still not going to have enough delegates unless you hold the elections. So you're, you're right. still going to have a contention at the convention. I guess they would. They, let's just play out Maddow's situ, uh, fantasy, which is that I assume they would make some kind of, I don't know, like, okay, we're, it's a war, it's a pandemic time and we need to change the rules. Would they change the delegates? Would they, would Bernie give, I don't even know how it would work. I don't know how that would work at all. Yeah. I mean, the, the, obviously, the DNC is a you know it's not a public organization, so they they could probably create right. their own rules right. and, yeah. and, and, and you know have some kind of plenipotentiary right. thing for right. this. But, but I, yeah. I just want to know if Maddow and Williams are actually calling for canceling all primary races. Like, let's say Bernie Sanders did step down, drop out, would they also would all the other primary races be canceled? Because if not. There's that doesn't solve the public health issue. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I'm asking her in her proposal, would down ballot races just also be because of this pandemic be canceled? Right. And if so, she should put that into the uh, argument. And if not, she's just making a very weird selective argument, which is one person should drop out because elections are dangerous. But we should still have the elections not for president, at which point it makes no sense. You know what I mean? Like even just her own logic doesn't make sense. And we, I forget if we talked about this last week, but there was a video going around of Simone Sanders uh, appearing on uh, Chris Cuomo, on CNN, Chris Cuomo. And it was really interesting because this had taken place right after the debate. So last, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. And hours after the CDC issued a recommendation to 
cancel events of 50 people or more. So this, and this video of, of Simone Sanders had been going around, and, and in the video, you just see her saying to Chris Cuomo, the CDC and folks have said it's safe to vote on Tuesday, so I encourage you to go out and vote. But I actually found the full video of it, right? Because I, when I saw that, I was like, maybe she didn't know about the latest CDC adjustment update. But it was mentioned that the, during the debate, which presumably, ostensibly, she watched, and she's responding literally to a question from Chris, Chris Cuomo, where he says the CDC has said not 50 people or more, and he says that's virtually every polling place, right? Uh, CDC says no groupings bigger than 50. That's like every polling station, except in very small counties. Uh, the idea of delaying primaries. Uh, Senator Sanders seemed comfortable with that. We should listen to what the CDC says. Delay the primaries if we have to. What are your concerns? Well, look, uh, Chris, I want to be very clear. Uh, democracy is extremely important. And in times of war, in times of strife, our country has always upheld the need to upheld our, uphold our democracy. Um, we have voted in war times. We have, you know, votes were held um, many times in this country after, again, times of strife. So the reality is that the CDC has, in fact, yes, issued guidance um, that has told people to keep their social distancing, not to gather in large crowds. And governors across the country, particularly in the states that vote on Tuesday, Ohio, Ohio, Arizona, Florida, um, Illinois, they have said that they feel comfortable and are confident that the elections will not only be safe, but that they can carry them mm -hmm. out. And so I am looking to these governors, frankly, um, to abide by the CDC guidance. And if they say that they can administer this, administer this process, we believe them, frankly. So a number of early votes, though, Chris, have already been cast. Right. I was looking at some stuff today that said um, Florida's early vote numbers are, are, are tracking ahead of what they were in 2016. So I just encourage folks to you folks to use your voice. Your vote is your voice. And our democracy um, is, is extremely important. And even in times of strife in this country, we have to do our duty. So there is no question that she knew about this adjust this update. So when she said that, it's like, I don't know if it's is that objectively a lie? If I don't you. Know. All right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's obnoxious. And of yeah. course, the, we've gone over this in the show. Last time we were talking about this, we were we were condemning the Democrats for demanding that the primaries go forward or continue yeah. to do it. Now they want to cancel them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Pick a lane. Pick an argument. Yeah, exactly. And Brianna Joy Gray uh, pointed out this this moment on CNN with um, Simone Sanders. Again, no relation to Bernie Sanders. She worked for the, the Biden campaign. And when she did that, people were like reported for voter suppression. All Brianna was saying was that the CDC has not said it's safe to vote on Tuesday. And, you know, you had all these people. It was like kind of an amazing moment. Yeah. Well, it, a lot of ugliness on Twitter, obviously. Yeah. Well, even even more than usual, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, for Republicans suck, uh, if listeners and watchers of the show would, would, will know that we've occasionally had difficulty in recent times uh, getting uh, good material for this segment. Uh, not anymore. Uh, it's been it's been pretty bad in the last last few weeks. The kind of Republicans are returning to their roots, uh, which is you know, rep the party that represents sacrificing human life, safety and health for profit and the economy and the good of the wealthy. Uh, we've well, had a lot. Of can I just ask you something really like, is it that they that they were on pause on this, on their their kind of signature philosophy and, and policy? Or was it just outweighed by greater than usual hypocrisy from Dems? Yeah, I, I 
I think it's just been a little bit in remission. Like, you know, in the, in the, in the Bush years, you know, the, the, the craziness was so, so far over the top compared to what's going on right now. The, the outrageousness in the Republican party has mostly been concentrated uh, in the, the statements of Donald Trump. Right which are all over the place, right? right. There, there, there isn't like a particular ideological, uh, you know, you, you could say that his statements about immigration are kind of in keeping with previous Republican themes. And uh, I but- think that we are speaking to something which is that the media, you said it's hard for us to find, and I, I don't want people to think we're like soft on Republicans, but I do think that it actually speaks to a problem in the media, which is that because there's so much more coverage of Trump's tweets and statements, they're actually doing a wor- not a very good job, imagine that, of of covering the craven heartlessness of Republicans. Well, right, yeah, and also I would say like on a lot of the policy issues, the Republic, the, the worst things that Republicans have done in the last three or four years, a lot of them have been kind of co-signed by right, that's Democratic it. Party, whereas we have kind of a difference here that's kind of that's stark. And, and obviously this is because of the, the political football the coronavirus has become, and I don't know, Frankly, Matt, I don't, don't know why the Republicans it. are doing this. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, they, this, this is like a, a, a perception problem that's similar to the Democrats' uh, boundless faith in, in some notion of electability that no longer exists. The Republicans have jumped on this idea that the economy is, is what's going to get Donald Trump reelected and the disappearance, the collapse of the stock market uh, uh, eliminates his case for reelection. And as a result, they're saying all these incredibly stupid things. Let's just start with the first one, which is from Lieutenant Governor of Texas, uh, Dan Patrick, who incidentally is not the sportscaster, Dan Patrick, but a different guy. Oh, yeah, I was very older. confused. Um, uh, Dan, can we hear this? And, you know, Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, Uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. Um, And that doesn't make me noble or brave or anything like that. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country like me. I have six grandchildren that what we all care about and what we love more than anything are those children. And I want to, you know, live smart and, uh, and, and see through this, but I don't want the whole country to be sacrificed. Uh, and, I, and that's what I see. Great message. Uh, if you're a good and loving uh, grandparent, you should uh, be willing to off- uh, sacrifice your life for the good of the, uh, the, the New York Stock Exchange and uh, the economy and the dollar and all that. I mean, that's basically what he's saying is uh, old people most old people would be willing to die to make sure the economy doesn't collapse, um, which is just absolutely nuts. It's like a you know, completely psychopathic thing to say and also not true or, or uh, yeah. accurate in any, any way. Why doesn't uh, he go to a bunch of, why doesn't he go help a bunch of people with Corona if that's the case? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's also a false choice. I mean, uh, you know, the, the notion that they have to do this. And then, you know, Trump, there've been a lot of statements from Trump, that have been in that vein, um, I think, and and they've often been coupled with like severely uh, unrealistic or or uh, inaccurate assessments 
And um, the, the most recent one that really uh, flipped me out was the, this one where he's talking about Easter. Uh, Dan, if we could see that. We turn now to Washington, where we just heard from the president and his coronavirus task force. President Trump wants to reopen the country by Easter Sunday. But many public health experts say that is too soon and could risk a health care catastrophe. Paula Reed reports tonight from the White House. President Trump says he would like to send people back to work in roughly three weeks. Our decision will be based on hard facts and data as to the opening. I'm also hopeful to have Americans working again by that Easter, that beautiful Easter day. It makes sense because, you know, as that Texan Republican just said, he's willing to sacrifice himself for the children. And of course, Easter is all about the rebirth Right, sacrifice. Jesus Christ, you yep. sacrifice himself, and then Lent, right? You sacrifice some dietary, some menu options. Right. Uh, so it really all comes full circle. So this is yeah, what you're doing is you're you're figuratively nailing the elderly to a cross, which is uh, very appropriate. You being Jewish, also. I know. Right? Well, you're welcome, Christians, because where do you think he came from? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, this is this is why why is he doing this? Why 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 is he saying? Why announce that you you want to reopen the country by Easter? It's not beautiful it's not up Easter. To you. It's going to be Easter. It's going to be up to the the, the disease. What you know how this all pans out, and it that makes it makes no sense that they're doing this. And again, just to get back to to the core point, most people I think would understand if the economy collapses because of this, no one's going to blame rationally is going to blame a politician for that happening. What they're going to blame them for is not responding to the crisis right. appropriately. And so why the Republicans didn't just go on television and say, look, this is, this is going to suck for a while. You know, we've right. made a lot of gains economically in the last couple of years, or some people have, and, and that's going to go away. Uh, but we're going to do what we can to, to fix this. Right. Why not just right. do that? I mean, it would just, it would, it would, that would be an appropriate tactic. Instead, they're, they're going to, try to get people to go out in the street and go back to restaurants before this thing is, is is fixed. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think really what Trump should have done was nailed it to, uh, if you will, to <laughs> solstice. When solstice? I think the solstice was on the 21st of March, if I'm not mistaken. Dan, can um, we look that up? I love the way you know solstice. Wow. Well, I mean, the solstice is changing in the seasons, isn't it? It was, uh, it was March 19th. I'm just saying, I think Trump could really win the pagan vote if he went with solstice and it would also give him a, a year to get things under control. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been great if he had something, it said something like, I'd, I'd like to reopen the country by, you know, uh, the day of the women. Of, yeah, of exactly. Women. Yeah. Like sat satanic Easter or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. uh, by, by May, May 3rd, the, the anniversary of the death of Anton LaVey or some, some crazy yeah, thing. Yeah. Like that, right? Diwali, Diwali. Diwali. Is Diwali? Oh, it's a it's a uh, Hindu holiday. Oh, Hindu I'm not holiday, mocking. Yeah. I mean, I'm not equating it. There's nothing satanic about it. I'm just thinking of of things that he would never, you know, or holy, yeah. another Hindu ho uh, holiday. Yeah. Purim. Purim. That would be Purim. great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That would be great. And or you know, he, his his son-in-law would love it. Jared he picked his, his his favorite figure from the Santeria religion, and you know, that would be amazing. And said, yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. We'll if, sacrifice a chicken and send everyone back to work. Right. Yeah, we should ask our let's ask our yes. viewers to listeners to chime in. What what date should Trump have chosen? Yes, or choose. Do? Look, we Trump may be watching us right now, so yeah. we will take suggestions. And also, I do. This does come back to every now and then. There's a woke Trump moment on mm -hmm. uh, like unintentional, right, where he says something that Chomsky would say, 
we should do a Trump or Chomsky, but he says something Chomsky would say, like, you know, the U.S. won't do anything about Saudi Arabia. Khashoggi? After Khashoggi was killed, Trump was like, well, well we're not going to do anything because uh, they just bought a lot of arms from us. They just right. paid us tons of money for arms. And again, it's like, woke arms. Trump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's woke Trump. He's like, he's he's just taking the mask off and, and talking about the way um, brutality is incorporated into the United States foreign policy and economy. And of course, if Chomsky had said it, he would have said that's a bad thing. Trump is kind of like, okay with it. But right. this could be, so this, we're giving viewers a chance and listeners a chance to do a woke Trump date. Yeah, so. I, I, I actually think we should, we should put a lid on that and we should actually just do a segment on Trump or Chomsky. That'd be funny. Right? Yeah, we gotta yeah. do it, yeah. We should actually even ask Chomsky to answer the question. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. we should have asked Noam, yeah. yeah. I just wanted to point out, this reminds me so much, this whole denial that this is happening and you can just go outside and don't worry. It triggered a memory for me of the movie, Eric the Viking, who we just watched, Dan, the famous High Brazil is not sinking ending, uh, which has become the official motto of the GOP lately. Still, what some of you must be thinking, the day has come, we're all going to go down, etc., etc. But let's get away from the fantasy and look at the facts. We uh, do seem to be going down quite fast, Your Majesty. Not trying to contradict you, of course. <laughs> of course you're not, citizen. But let's stick to the facts. The threat of total destruction has kept the peace here in High Brazil for 1,000 years. So whatever else is happening, you can rest assured, High Brazil is not sinking. May I just make a point in support of what King Arnold's just said? Oh, we, we'd be delighted, wouldn't we? Yes! We said the idea Save yourselves! High Brazil is sinking! Oh, but you don't know our safety precautions. It can't happen. But it is, look! I already appointed the Chancellor as Chairman of a full committee of inquiry, and in the meantime, I suggest we have our things on. I just thought in, in honor of the late, great Terry Jones, the lead actor in that scene who just recently died, uh, the, um, we should point that out, that High Brazil is not sinking is about to become the official motto what? of the United States. So Is that Monty Python, by the way? It's it's a bunch of guys from Monty Python. Okay. It, it's it's one of the movies they made after the the breakup of the show. Uh, Matt, we should also do instead. We should, in addition to a woke button, we should ha give Matt a Monty Python button. And give <laughs> me a waiting for Guffman button. <laughs> for all excellent. the times that we refer to those movies, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I spent about four years of my life doing nothing but watch Monty Python episodes. Yeah. Uh, what do we have for for? Uh, isn't that weird? Okay, so uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I made the. Uh, founded allegation that um, Beto O'Rourke, whom we told to go fuck himself over his uh, Biden endorsement, uh, we spoke the type of language that Beto understands. He's a big fan of that F-bomb. I said that he came from slave owning stock and Matt and the crew, including perhaps Daniel, Dan, <laughs> who's here right now, mocked me mercilessly. Well, slash, they, they thought that maybe I should have some documentary evidence of said claims before I, I accuse someone of coming from slave owning stock. But lo and behold, I was right. Now, why do I bring this up? I don't oh, know. This, this is about having sex with dolphins. This is. Well, I was going to say <laughs> I brought up having sex with dolphins and Matt said something like this isn't real. And you always talk about this. Now, I don't think I talked about it before, but you dolphin doubt you. You uh, what do I say? Uh, a, a dolphin shamed you. You I can't believe it's real me. and. Lo and behold, I'm looking for a isn't that weird of the week. And what do I find? But a story at the mirror. I'm not sure why it's so timely, but um, 
Man had sex with a dolphin called Dolly for a year and claimed she seduced him. <laughs> See? And we know this because uh, Malcolm Brenner, the said man, wrote a book, Wet Goddess. <laughs> dolphin, who he claims to have, uh, have a relationship with. So he's a self-confessed zoophile who claims he had an affair with the dolphin called Dolly after she seduced him. Now 68, Malcolm was still a student when he embarked on the relationship with the bottlenose dolphin in the 1970s. He has written a novel, Wet Goddess, which tells the story of a young man who has a sexual relationship with the dolphin, Ruby. I like that he changed her name from Dolly to Ruby because he wanted to protect her identity, I guess, while he's working he at a theme just dead the dolphin, sort of, right? Is I know, I, I doxed her. I dolphin yeah. doxed. Malcolm has admitted the book is autobiographical and based on his own experiences. He said, I wrote this book for dolphins because we are mistreating these animals by keeping them in captivity. Okay. Now, I don't know if he's the best dolphin advocate because you want someone who's, I mean, that's a great like PR move for the do for dolphin killers out there because they're like only dolphin perverts. Look who's making the pro-dolphin argument, a bunch of dolphin perverts. They'll, they'll be like, the only people, all these environmentalists, they're just, they just want to have sex with dolphins. They just want relationships right. with dolphins. And I know this because I read Wet Goddess. So he worked, um, Malcolm does say that in his early 20s, he started his relationship with Dolly. He was a keen photographer and was allowed to take pictures in the pool at a former theme park in Sarasota, Florida, where he lived. And he soon formed a close bond with Dolly. He said, I was given free access to the dolphins and I became friends with her by going swimming with her. She was very special. Malcolm claims Dolly announced her intentions towards him by positioning herself so he was rubbing against her. He added, at first I discouraged her. I wasn't interested. After some time, I thought, if this was a woman, would I come up with these rationalizations and excuses? <laughs> Malcolm insists Dolly became more and more aggressive in her pursuit of him. He said, I found that extraordinarily erotic. It's like being with a tiger or a bear. This is an animal that could kill you in two seconds if it wanted to. How dare you equate tigers and dolphins and their violence? Okay. Then one night after the theme park had closed, Malcolm says, he and Dolly eluded the male dolphin so they could spend time alone and eventually had sex for the first time. Ugh. So what are, the, what are the logistics of having sex with the dolphin? I don't know the logistics, but he says it was transcendental. He said there's something transcendental about making love with a dolphin. And then there was nothing abusive about the relationship, he said, because dolphins basically have free will, something we talked about when we talk about sports, right, Matt? Yes. Free agency. Is, free agency. What is repulsive about a relationship where both partners feel and express love for each other? Oh my God, this is so gross. I know what I'm talking about here because after we made love, the dolphin put her snout on my shoulder, embraced me with her flippers, and we stared into each other's eyes for about a minute. <laughs> they light up a pair of lucky strikes too? <laughs> <laughs> is it good for you? This is not some dog trying to hump my leg, okay? This is a 400-pound wild-born female dolphin. She was an awesome creature this is really sad though but nine months after malcolm began his relationship with dolly the park closed and she was moved elsewhere it's like a romeo and juliet story and yeah. the relationship didn't break any laws as bestiality was only banned in florida in 2011 first of all how classically grossly male is that to after you get busted for doing something absolutely vile to say oh they she came out to me gross that's a that's a horrible so story I, I i will never dolphin doubt you again i promise thank you yeah uh for isn't isn't that terrible not hard to find terrible right now obviously uh so this is a a, a clip the russians have an expression we leave without commentary uh so uh doctor a friend of mine sent this to me and i think uh it kind of speaks for itself. It's a it's a border scene from 
from China. I think this is sort of a, this might be in our future. So uh, man gets out of the, uh, the car, they stop the car, he gets out, they have these, they have like a crew that's clearly done this many times before. They look like Power Rangers. And they, they throw a butterfly net over his head. Wait, they have like a crew. It's like straight out of the movie Brazil when... when High Brazil or low when Brazil. The guy, yeah, when the, when the guy runs down the hallway and there's like a guards with like rubber masks on, they go out and they grab people with butterfly nets over their heads. They literally have a butterfly net that they grab the guy's head with and they drag him off into some place. And uh, that's apparently what, what's been going on in the border. And the thing that's striking about this video is it's pretty clear this isn't the first time they've done this. Right, they have a uh, protocol, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, as my friend put it, it's like a, you can, a baseball team that was turning a double play. Like, it's clearly not the first time they've turned a double play. Like, uh, they've exactly done this what before. I was so I was there's so many horrifying possible eventualities with this with the situation that we're in. Um, hope it doesn't come to, you know, if you're trying to cross from the New York border into Pennsylvania or something like, or, or into uh, New Jersey, that, that this is what, what happens. But it's pretty scary. By the way, I can't believe you said that because ugh, I don't want to reveal more about where I am. I could, within five minutes of taping, try to cross into the Pennsylvania border. Wow, so we gotta call up somebody with a butterfly net and uh, see if they can grab you before you, before you cross. What are the line. odds? I'm really close to Pennsylvania right now. So wait, but what, what border is that on? It's, 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 it's in a Chinese province. Uh, so it's a person trying to cross from one place to another. Comes and up to a, a gate and clearly didn't, didn't have the hilarity right. Hilarity ensues. Right, and hilarity ensues. I got this video after I had just done an interview with a, with a lawyer who was talking about federal emergency powers in these situations. And one of the things that, that the government is empowered to do, they are uh, empowered to forcibly detain people if they are, are uh, infected and crossing state lines or they're in contact with somebody who is likely to cross state lines. Mm. So um, that's... if. In the future, if we're going to have federal, like uh, seriously draconian federal enforcement, it would probably be along borders. So, so that, that helped me have nightmares. And that's why I'm sharing this with all you. So. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is where this is a safe space and this is where the healing starts. Yeah, or the anti-healing, right? This is the whole premise of, the, of this segment is to try to freak people out so they get scared. Oh, yeah, you're right. This is right. where the healing ends. Right, exactly. Yeah, where you're the healing the ends. Anti- Perfect. Yeah. Useful idiots, colon, where the healing ends. <laughs> I like it. That's a good, N- good The no healing zone, yeah. All right, so what should we start with this well, week? Well, do you want to go with your piece first, or do you want to start with Twitter stuff, or...? Yeah, just quickly. So I did an, I did an article this week about the, the Richard Burr uh, insider trading thing. And just, just to, for, to recap, people who didn't follow this, Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina, along with several other members of Congress, three senators, uh, including Kelly Leffler from Georgia, uh, James Inhofe from Oklahoma, and Diane Feinstein from California. Representing the Dems. Exactly, yeah. Um, all got busted for dumping stock. Uh, after they had had received critical non-public briefings. Burr is the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and they had a briefing in early February. And the thing that's really villainous about this, and he dumped up to $1.7 million in stock. And the reason it's a range is because the disclosure requirements don't require you to tell exactly how much, but you have to say within a certain amount. So it was many hundreds of thousands of dollars up to $1.7 million in stock that he dumped after a certain date. And this was at a time when he was repeating the Republican mantra that we you know, were fully prepared to, to deal with this crisis and essentially don't worry and we're going to get through this just fine. Meanwhile, behind closed doors, 
he was dumping stock and also telling a meeting of people at the Tar Hill Club, which is like a, a group of influential donors, that this thing is going to be more aggressive than the 1918 pandemic. And, you know, everybody should be terrified to their, to their core about this. And it wasn't just Burr. It was Burr, three other senators, and at least two dozen members of the House were doing this. Just quickly, Dan, if we could look at the video of Kelly Leffer from Georgia denying that she had done this. Before the market went down, were you trading on inside information about what was coming? Well, I'm, I'm really glad you asked, Ed, because I do want to set the record straight. I've seen some of those stories, and it's absolutely false, and it could not be true. So if you actually look at the personal transaction reports that were filed, it notices at the bottom that I'm only informed of my transactions after they occur, several weeks. So certainly those transactions, okay. at least on my behalf, were a mix of buys and sells, very routine for my portfolio. Okay. And, um, you know. You, you say they were routine, Senator pardon me, but uh, in t I mentioned the sales before stocks went down. They also purchased your third-party advisors, Sitnix, as I understand, which is a teleconferencing company uh, with workers displaced now, <laughs> given the crisis, teleconferencing companies are doing quite well. Who are these third-party advisors? They seem to have a pretty good idea about where the market was headed. Well, certainly, I'm not involved in the decisions around buying and selling. There's a range of uh, different decisions made every day with regard to my savings and 401k portfolios that I'm not involved in. And certainly, uh, like any other trade, you, you can't see into the future. I come out of the financial services industry yeah. where I have over 20 years of experience of dealing and complying with okay. very strict yeah, standards. Right. Yeah, so... This is pretty standard. First of all, Kelly Leffler, I think her, not mistaken, her husband is the chief executive at the New York Stock Exchange. And this is an indication of how, how grotesque this behavior is. This is, a, this is Fox News grilling a Republican and not only asking the question, not, do, not, not just putting it out there so that she could put out her denial, but after she denies it, saying, yeah, yeah but yeah, not but only yeah. not only did you do that, but you actually invested in a, in a teleconferencing company, which seemed uh, like pretty fortuitous uh, decision-making. Who are those people who are making those decisions for you? And, you know, she retreats back to this island of saying, oh, you know, it's a blind trust. I wasn't making those decisions. Yeah. Bird made similarly ridiculous comments. He basically said, oh, you know, I was just basing everything off stuff I saw on CNBC. And so I, I wrote a, a piece sort of going over why, why this still happens, because there, this has been a controversy for nearly 20 years now. Dating back to 2004, they did a study that showed that trades by U.S. senators on average uh, beat the, the market by about 85 basis points. So they're consistently better than, than the average performer. Uh, in 2012, we passed something called the Stock Act which affirmatively proscribes insider trading by members of Congress because it actually, there, there was an ambiguity uh, about this because true insider trading is somebody who has inside information from a company and then and trades on that. What senators and members of Congress are doing is they're getting non-public political information and trading on that. And there were uh, the SEC enforcement director back in 2012 testified that 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 difference presented some challenge and there was no precedent for prosecuting that so they did have to put make it against the law they did but then a year later they watered down the disclosure requirements that so it, it made it basically impossible to search to see 
who was doing this. Uh, the, the original law mandated that they create an easily searchable database uh, so that everybody could check. A year later, they got rid of that, and then they did it by PDF, and you have to pay 10 cents a page to get the records. Uh, so in order to catch people, you got to print out a gazillion pages of stuff and go through it all individually, which is why they never catch these guys. And it was only in this very extreme case, but they've busted people over and over and over again, and nothing ever gets done about this. And you know, I, I talked to some of the folks who were involved with the original drafting of this law this week, and they were, they were saying this finally is such a bad incident that they might actually change some of those procedures now because it's so, it's so ghastly and everybody's so pissed off about it. Uh, who are some of the people you spoke to, Matt? Well, I, I spoke to Craig Holman, a public citizen who helped uh, Louis Slaughter draft the original complaint. So I, I remember back when this was happening, when they when they were drafting the Stock Act, because it was sort of it was sort of just after, well, not when they were drafting it, but when when they were debating it. This was in the heat of the time when they were doing the Dodd Frank Act, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a lot of anger about the relationship between the public and and Congress. And they had made the argument at that that time that it's already basically against the law. The reason that we don't catch this is because we don't have a system for seeing it. You know, if you make a a stock trade and you're, you know, a CEO of a company, it's very easy to check because that's all in a publicly searchable, it's a a public exchange, the SEC can see it quickly, but there isn't really a, a separate mechanism for looking at elected officials and what they're doing And Congress has a special, for instance, if you work in the executive branch, you have to divest yourself of any stocks that might have any relation to what you're doing for the government. But you don't have to do that if you're in Congress. It's like this little bubble. Right. And so they, at the time, they they were like, it's really important that we create this mechanism so that everybody can see. And I remember that. I remember talking to them about that, about the searchable, sortable, and downloadable were the key words. And then a year later, as what they always do with this, they quietly, by unanimous consent, which means everybody voted for this in Congress, they quietly got rid of that. And then so these scandals keep proliferating. And it's, it, by the way, it's not a Republican or Democratic thing. Right. It's beautiful, it, bipartisanist. Yeah, exactly. Like Nancy Pelosi has been busted for this. I mean, you know, a lot of people have, do, have done this. Uh, Dennis Hastert on the other side, Bob Corker from Tennessee has, has had questions about his stock training. So this issue is just, I think this was a, among all the other bad news incidents from the last couple of weeks, this was a particularly rotten one. It's almost a reminder of how long the fight against congressional insider trading has gone on and how, despite some successful reforms, a frenetic history of loophole making has allowed this activity to continue. It's a, that sounds really familiar. Where are you getting that from? I don't know. From God's ears. <laughs> from God's lips. No, really, really gross, though. I, I, the Burr thing reminds me a little bit of your dolphin story. Like, not when they, as soon as they cornered him, he, he didn't, he didn't, like, apologize. He immediately doubled down and said, no, you know, I was just being a smart investor who watches the CNBC. Right. And then he, de- he demanded an ethics investigation, uh, ethics committee investigation that would clear his name. So anyway, it does sound like that issue is going to come up again in, in Congress. Also, that woman, Lawfer, um, she's like, oh, I have no idea what's happening. I had no idea. I don't know what's happening. I don't follow it. And then she's also like, I'm very experienced in this. Right. Yeah. She's been in the financial services industry for a gazillion years and, and her husband runs a stock yeah. exchange and she's just not thinking about it all as she, as she gets access to all these yeah. critical non, non-public uh, briefings that are going to affect interest rates right. and the stock market and everything else. Yeah. kind of right. needs to pick a lane. One issue about this that's, I think people, 
uh, have to remember is people do get upset about members of Congress and their salaries, but right. salaries have really nothing to do with how they how folks who go into politics make their money. And then traditionally, right. the way the way you make money in, in politics, you go into politics afterwards, you drop out and take a high price job. Yeah, yeah, you either sit on a corporate board or, you know, if you're like Billy Tozen, the, the congressman from Louisiana, you work on the prescription drug benefit bill and then you take a job, $2 million a year working for pharma. Or if you work in the SEC, you drop out, take a multi-million dollar a year job uh, as a law firm defending the same people you used to prosecute. But this is the one avenue, you know, it's not most members of Congress, but a lot of them, while they're in Congress, are making hundreds or thousands of trades a year. And because it's in this weird gray area where the SEC has never touched, if you want to look to see how, how much uh, members of Congress are making, you don't look at their salary, look at what they, what they call their net worth when they enter the service and what it is when they leave. Right. And that, that's how you know how much money they're making. The revolving door? Yeah, but this isn't even a revolving door because- because right? they're yeah. still in, a, in office. Yeah, you're not even waiting till you leave right. to cash in. And that's, that's the thing. Like If they can't even stop that, that tells you how bad it is when the legal stuff goes on. Right. Yeah. There's no door. It's just... Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The revolving door is getting elected. Like That's, that's the door. Yeah. Right. All right. So we, we have a new segment. We're going to be doing interactive segment of Useful Idiots where we, we meet you, uh, the listener, or you, and you, you, the viewer. Oh, yeah. We meet you. I was just we thinking, yeah. You. yeah. You meet and, us. And you. And, and, but not why are you. You. We meet you. And we're going to do this pretty regularly so we can introduce ourselves to, to, to the folks who watch and listen to the show. Meet and, and uh, Meet and greet. Yeah, exactly. So let's go to the videotape. Dan, who, who's up first? We have, uh, I think it's Daniel, at Daniel 06124099. Catchy Twitter handle. Yeah, this is Daniel, at Daniel 06124099. Important Biden question. Uh, hey, Katie and Matt. Uh, quick question. Uh, at the last Democratic debate, do you think that Joe Biden was on drugs? Not to be hyperbolic, I, it just, he seemed pretty coherent during that debate, but in uh, subsequent public appearances, he's peer, appeared to be uh, falling apart. So what, why in the debate was he so together? I don't know, what do you think? So hard for whalers. Katie, why is that funny? Well, because... <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. It's offensive because I don't believe in whaling and, or may, Oh no, sorry. He's saying go hard. He's like saying punish whalers. So yeah, I, I get it. It's not funny. It's a, it's a very, and it's very related to our dolphin theme for today. It is also the Hartford whalers don't exist anymore. I think he's, he's, he's showing, showing off. Oh wait, was he saying go Hartford whalers? Hartford whalers. Yes. I thought he was saying go hard for whalers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Well, now that I heard him correctly, of course, I know a lot about the Hartford Whalers. I, of course, I know about them. I just literally didn't hear him. So it's funny because because Hartford is a really terrible city. And I know that because yeah. I went to school near there. That's right. You did. Yeah. You um, went to Wesleyan, right? Yeah, I, of course. And, I, and, and the only reason I know Wesleyan, the reason I wanted to go there was because Bob Belichick. Bill. Yeah. <laughs> or or Bill even yeah. Friends call him Bob. Sorry, you don't <laughs> know that. Yeah. yeah, sorry when you know him the way I do. Yeah, um, Belichick's Bob. many jo jovial, jokey friends. They call him Bob. Right? Yeah, they call him yeah. Bob. A light. That's going to be the book I write about my relate. You know, you have wet goddess. I'm going to write. They call him Bob. 
which will be about my relationship with Bill Belichick. Or Bob, even. Yeah. Well, I was trying to talk in your language. As a (laughs) civilian, you don't know that name. So you're right. No, no, it's they call him Bob or it's I call him Bob. My relationship with Bill Belichick. Right. Wait, Which is his name in real life? It's Bill. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Remind me what sport that is. I, I can't remember. I have so much Well, Hartford Whalers was hockey. I think they're now the Carolina Hurricanes. Is that right? They originally were based in Boston. This is according right. to Wikipedia here. And then they moved in 1997 to North Carolina as the Hurricanes. Right. Yeah, as exactly. the Hurricanes came, they, they moved as the Hurricanes were coming. They, they went south because the Hurricanes are much worse in Boston than in the south. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what the genesis is. No, but, but we're showing, I'm showing once again that my theory is always right, which is that what drives sports teams and sport and athletes is always going towards the warmth. Right. Uh, we're, we're stalling. The, the answer to the question, Daniel, is we're not supposed to do this and speculate, but I'm just going to say, I, I, I think that Biden, you know, just some kind of amphetamine. Yeah. But then there was like an evening out drug they put underneath. Right. So because if he, they had just cranked him up, he would have been all right. over the place. Right. I think it was like like amphetamines cut with like a Haldol or a Thorazine, something like yeah. that. I mean, it had to be heavy on both sides because he's, you know. It, it, someone thought B12 or something also. Oh, just like a vitamin injection? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then someone else suggested steroids because you asked about this on Twitter. Um, but someone I spoke to in real life, IRL, said he thought that he also was able to, they like had him sleep for days ahead of time. Right. Like in, like in the movie Alien, right? They put him in one of those pods and like yeah. power, had him power sleep for a while to, yeah. to reach, revivify yeah. him. Yeah. Right. Possible. That's a good idea. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. And then, no, I mean, I was amazed. Like, you remember um, a while ago, Chris Cuomo said a couple, like many debates ago, he's back when, like, I think, Kamala Harris was still on it, but he said about Biden he, that he this was the best he had done all all de, all season, all you know during the entire primary. He was alert the entire time. Right. Yes. Now this is like the opposite, which was like that's his norm. So what was happening that he was alert the entire time for real? Like, like last time he was alert the entire time, but this time he was elo- he was actually eloquent. That's what was scary. Right. Yeah. More or less. I mean, he 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 got a lot of facts wrong and and said a lot well, of things lied. that were wrong. Like, he right. lied a but lot. That's but also on brand for him. But yes. But he didn't fumble. He didn't fumble. Yeah. Some, right? people, a lot of people were saying we're cherry picking stuff. No. I mean, if you followed him, and I, I've been to a bunch of his events in the last couple last year, uh, he has trouble. You know, if you if you leave him sort of unmoored yeah. in an unscripted setting for any length of time, yeah, he loses the see. thread quickly. Which he didn't. He didn't do. Yeah. And we're gonna get to this later in the yeah. later show. So yeah, I I I think it's. It's a mix. Do you have Do you have any votes? Do you think Jill had a, a piece in? Uh, there was like a thing in his ear that Jill was talking into. Yeah, they put like a, a Mr. Microphone in the middle yeah. of his head or something. Yeah, I don't know. Or was he just? Was it someone wearing a Joe Biden suit, like face suit? A dolphin face. in a Biden suit. Yeah. All right. Who, who's next? So the next question is from at David's ego. Do you think social democratic policies in the U.S. will emerge post? pandemic containment. I think that would be a very optimistic way of looking at this is that a- after the this pandemic that we're going to go to some Sanders style uh, system that's going to have more social guarantees. Obviously, 
there's going to be a lot of that. And we're already seeing pretty rapidly a move towards things like we're going to send checks to everybody and we're going to stimulate the economy and we're going to do all these other things to boost the social safety net. Uh, but, you know, there's the vision that I see happening more and more likely is something more like national socialism, where it's completely authoritarian. Um, on, on the one hand, there are all these draconian measures that we're going to institute to give the government more control over things, and that's going to be mixed in with, uh, you know, sort of permanent government support of the corporate state. But then there's going to be some political concessions to giving some people some guarantees. Uh, but I, I don't, I just don't see this becoming like a social demo, social democracy movement that's going to come out of the, the, the pandemic. I, I, I think of anything it would be the opposite. Before we get back and debate that, but national socialism as a Nazism? Exactly. Like the fascist conception of this. In, in other words, it's more, it sounds closer to what Mussolini, right? Like, right. Yeah. I mean, corporatism. It, it, Right. It's going to be there, there are there are going to be some state guarantees, programs, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it's going to be, you know, the strong hand provides. Right. You know, it's going to be yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. I that, guess I think that, like, that's just it's so hard to separate those policies in the case of Nazism from the genocidal. Right. But, but, right. But no, I, I understand what you're saying. But the, the, the you're saying it's the political, the, the non Jew killing political, non every other non-purging, killing off undesirables, including Jews. Yeah, no, but the, the, the classic kind of fascist, fascistic right. formulation is right. the strong, centralized state right, yeah. headed by, a, you know, a, a, a powerful, charismatic leader right. going to provide for the people. Right, yeah. right? And the right. power is derived from popular support. Yeah. There's, there's a kind of contract that goes on there. And then, uh, but that's mixed with, you know, the, the flip side of that is, you know, in return for all these guarantees and for, and for providing on some minimal level, you, you completely give over power to the government uh, and, and to that. Yeah. I think it's yeah. more likely we're going to get something like that than, you know, the, 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 the flip side is, are we just going to go back to the kind of neoliberal whatever that we're living in? We lived through up pre-pandemic. I don't know. I mean, it is it yeah. is interesting that you see all these these politicians immediately rushing to endorse Sanders-style policies in the middle of this. But uh, the, the trend in the last four or five decades has been to uh, eat away at the power of nation states, right. in, you know, in order to increase the movement of capital, capital. And yeah. companies and, and, you know, sort of right. yeah. relaxed border restrictions, right. tariffs, yeah. all that, and right. taxes, uh, less information, less intervention, right. privatized systems, but they're not going to be able to keep that up because they, they need a government structure to deal with this crisis. But I just think that they they may reform some things that are completely broken out of necessity, like the healthcare system. Like there yeah, are things right. they have to fix in order to do this. But right. the, I just I have very little optimism that they're going to do this in a way that, on a permanent level, that's going to be a good thing. You know? Yeah. But, right. At least there's some potential alternative, right? Which we haven't had before. Right. Yeah. Of exactly. the like of the, you know, more democratic socialist. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's kind of important to fight for that stuff now, especially because maybe if it used to be neoliberalism versus um, democratic socialism or social democracy, really now it's like neoliberalism versus the social democracy versus corporatism. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we got another thing we want to respond to from George 
Dom Pierre that his handle is Georgie Dom Pierre, D-A-M-P-E-E-R. Do you see Bernie Sanders candidacy beyond this point um, being able to make a viable third party candidacy, um, if not this year, at any point in time in the future? Kid, you want to start with us? Sure. I mean, I think that Sanders will never go. I like the idea that, like, if not this time, not four years, maybe in eight years, he'll do it. Yeah, um, when he's when he's 190 or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Woke button. I mean, no, I just think he'll never do that. Like, and it's to his credit or discredit. I mean, we saw this with his not very strong pushback to Biden. I just don't think he'll ever do that. He's too much of a team player. Bernie Sanders won't, but I think... The reality of the situation is that the the Sanders supporters mm-hmm. and the Democratic Party are really yeah. so far apart on yeah. almost every issue that it's inevitable that there's going to be some kind of formal schism there. I just I don't I don't see in the long term mm-hmm. how they could possibly continue to be under the same tent because uh, in addition to everything else, you know, the Democratic Party the traditional Democratic Party has moved so far on a lot of social issues. You know, they've abandoned civil liberties, for instance. They don't give you know care about that anymore. That the the gulf between these two things, these yeah. two groups, you know, on economic policy, on healthcare, and everything is it's just gotten bigger. Over, uh, and and there's more anim- animosity. Sanders won't do it, but I think in the future, uh, yeah. Which is why, in some ways, if you really hate Trump enough, which these Dems claim to, you would kind of want you'd see the strategic use of having Sanders because I think he would prevent a lot of people from leaving. I think the Dems, sadly, civil liberties is not social issues. I mean, maybe it's semantics, but for them, they certainly push back. They they really emphasize their wokery and they've never included civil liberties, even though that's a social issue, one could easily argue. They don't ever, especially because part of being um, good on issues of, of, I don't know, racial justice means not locking up like Muslims willy nilly. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, but, so, so yeah. they've doubled down on, on things like identity politics, but they've right. abandoned labor. They've abandoned well, that's, yeah, right. liberties. They've abandoned right. all kinds of things that traditionally constituted what you would call. Right. Yeah. And what's, I guess I'm, I'm bringing that up because I think it's an, it's, it's scary because I think they've, they're good on, especially also like, um, decor, uh, kind of superficial, um, uh, social issues, they're good. You know, they say the right things and they, they, but, but on those other issues, labor and, and I guess I'm just saying this because I think that if we say they're, they're not good on social issues, while that's true, it's like they're, they're nominally good on social issues and they're not even nominally good on civil liberties or labor. Maybe a little on labor, but yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, barely. Yeah. Barely, yeah. yeah, and you know, any, anything that involves the the, the economy, right. like the, eventually, you just you yeah. come up against the issue of who's supporting the party, and you just there's a natural dichotomy there. Well, what, one more. What do we have? Okay, this is from at Parker one four three three six 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 zero. Hi, Scott Ingalls from uh, originally from Calgary, oil analyst from First Energy Capital, and uh, currently trapped in uh, Jamaica. For about seven weeks. A boat. Um, hey, I have a theory that uh, Russia and China colluded to uh, tank the uh, oil market once Trump wasn't looking, paying attention to COVID nineteen, as an attack on the uh, Trump economy, for the trade wars and everything. Obviously, the pulling out of all deals, the nuclear deal, and uh, uh, want to know your thoughts. Peace and love. 
So the, the, the theory is that Russia and China colluded to, to collapse the oil markets. Russia wouldn't do that. I mean, Russia's a, a, an oil-based economy, right? So why would they... It hurts them more than it hurts us. I, I don't... But I mean, he would know that, wouldn't he? I don't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we got him on the show. Is there a real conspiratorial angle to this? I mean, I... I I don't know. I don't see one. Do you? No, but I, you know this stuff more than I do. But then again, Parker knows this stuff more than you do. And the, the, I focus more on sports. The one, the one yeah. Oh, we we actually have a a sports question for you okay. that we, I want to get one one I want to get to quickly. Yeah. Um, the one thing I, I I will say about the questions about this in terms of the conspiratorial angle on the on the COVID business, the one thing that freaks me out about this is that the premise of a pandemic that is used um, as a reason to institute like sort of radical surveillance and government control. It's one of these things that like the intelligence services have gamed out forever. So uh, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot in the coming months of from people who think that this is all part of a, a plot to to finally bring about you know, total control of, of global, whatever. I, globalists. Yeah, global, I, I just don't. That's me. I don't see it. I mean, it, look, it looks like this is actually just a real disease that that, that sort of organically happened uh, because bats and pangolins and whatever. But uh, we'll we'll see going forward. Don't so, heckle bats, guys. Don't forget our teachable right. our takeaway from last week was no bat heckling. No bat heckling, right? So, Katie, we had a question from. Okay, this is a question from at TNS, I think it's at TN Smuthound. Nice. And this is a response to Matt's affirmative that these could be sports related. What does Katie think of an extended NFL season? I think that honestly, if they want the NFL to work more hours, they need to pay up more. Right. <laughs> because they're yes. extending the season more hours, right? Yes, yes. And more risks to your health and your career. Yeah, pulling a hamstring or getting your brain broken. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to get at. Would, would, would you, the Samuel Gompers, uh, right. you know, so, socialist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, this is a big this is a big labor issue. The NFL, of course, you know, traditionally doesn't care about player safety. I mean, they had people playing basically on concrete for years with right. that uh, phone, that original artificial turf. Um, they don't care about CTE. They've gone to, uh, you know, ridiculous what is that concussive, uh, what is it? Concu- Cro- chronic know? traumatic encephalopathy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Brain. Um, yeah. And, and now they, you know, they just want to make more money. So they're, they're forcing these guys to play an extra game every year. And, you know, one, one game of a, in, in the NFL is, extremely dangerous for these guys they're already playing too many and the season is ridiculously too long i, I just don't think the nfl is going to exist in five or ten years I and mean, that's that's my take on it that's my hot take the nfl is just this is a lethal sport if these guys are dying eventually that has to be a thing right where we have right. to, to, we national football anymore. lethal more yeah. like national football lethal league um nfl Wait, is there but is there another side of this where people think they just shouldn't be extended because it's too much for them yeah Right, yeah. that's the other side of the debate. So actually, I'm going to go with that. I'd say yeah. no extension, but if it's extended, more pay. Right, yeah, and fewer preseason games. That should be another thing. Then the preseason, yeah. no, but there shouldn't be preseason football games. Also, can they play football? Um, is there a movement for? To, uh, is there a movement around this yet? Because if not, I'm going to start it. You know those big castles that kids go to in fair and 
the big bubble houses, yeah. bouncy houses. I think they should play football on those. Yeah, sure. That would be a Less great head idea. injury. Yeah, yeah. It'd be hard. The cleats would probably pop them. But right, yeah. you got that's where the innovation comes in. You got new right. kinds of sneakers. You barefoot. They should play in big bubble suits. Right? Yeah, like they should wear the the bubble suit the kind of suit. That, that Jake the, Gyllenhaal, yeah. Or the the guy the guy stopping the guy on the the border in China. Right, that, right. but with some padding. And right. I think maybe you're good. And instead of throwing a football, who needs that? You into a into a what is it called? Into the thing, the goal? No, not the goal. The into the end zone. Into the end zone, exactly. I was just giving you a chance to show off your knowledge. Right. Uh -huh. Instead of that, you just you throw a football into a butterfly net. Right. Or how about they could just talk to each other? They could have they an exchange. Just talk. Of yeah. Right? They, you know what? They you open a book a football, and talk. Yeah. They pass a pillow. Right. Yeah. It could be that. Yeah. Or they could have a have a joint. Yeah. A peace, smoke a peace pipe. Right. Yeah. Oh, exactly. By the way, speaking of peace pipes, people keep wondering who Joe Biden would name as his um, vice president because he said he would name a woman of color. And yeah. it's so obvious to me, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Really quickly, I just have to say that someone else, I don't want to read their name because maybe I shouldn't be because it's problematic, but I do want to say someone says, so can we ask Matt what it's like to work with someone so hot, lol? And then someone responds, she's way hotter when she's in a foul mood. Katie, please be surly on the next show. Pretty please. And then the other guy says, some angry women are just naturally attractive, lol. So I just want to say, I feel like those comments are kind of in the vein of Sir mix a lot. I like big butts and I cannot lie where they're objectifying, but they're also empowering or at least they're objectifying in a different direction. <laughs> Women are told to not be angry, that they are unattractive when they're angry. Right. And so I like that. Just like women are told to be smaller and not have big butts. So these, I consider these guys the Twitter warriors version of Sir mix a lot. Yeah. So I think we're getting, you're getting a hint of how you can get on the useful idiot show. Uh, say something, uh, I, send us a, a good video question. That's one Two. say something, you know, that's a compliment to, to, to Katie. You're talking about your, if you crush on Katie, you'll get on the show. But in a subversive way, in a subversive way. And of yeah. course the third right. one, but this, I guess you didn't name it cause it's so obvious. It goes without say, ask me about sports. Ask you about sports, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, so we should move on to yeah. a couple of things. This sort of doubles as a stone moment in a, in a news segment. Uh, Joe Biden had a tough week. He was he was missing for a while, which led to the, the creation of where is the where is Joe Biden hashtag. And then when he resurfaced, he had some pretty unfortunate uh, TV appearances. Dan, if we could look at the first one, that's from uh, actually the we took we took care of the cure was the quote would reassess the recommended period for keeping businesses shut and people at home. Are you at all concerned, as Trump said, that we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself? We have to take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse no matter what. No matter what. We know what has to be done. We know you have to. So we know you have to make the cure worse. Right. Or something, right? We have to take care of the cure. That will make the problem worse no matter what. I guess you, you could theoretically say that he just, he inverted it and it's not that bad. Right. Uh, people were saying that we're, ch we're, we're cherry picking. Yeah, sure. In isolation, it's not that bad. In isolation, it's not yeah. that bad. And, and what did Bernie do in the last one? He, he said um, Ebola instead of Corona. Yeah, he said Ebola, yeah. So, but the, here's the thing. This is more like, the, this next one is more representative of what yeah. Biden is like, you know, on a day-to-day on a -day basis. Dan, if we could see, see this one, the, the one from Teresa Tenario. 
That's just one joint, let's say. Uh, yeah. One joint stoned, and we'll launch this one now. We have never, never, never failed to respond to a crisis as a people. And I tell you what, I'm so darn proud. And those poor people who have lost, you know, anyway. This has happened so often that it's it's like a, it's been a rule in every one of our Rolling Stone yeah, drinking games. Yeah. The, the the check please moment from yeah, Biden, exactly. where where he in the middle of trying to say something forgets what what point he was trying to make right. and basically so ask for the check right. so he can get up and leave the table. Right, but ironically, the guy who can't usually can't stop talking and, and is so gaff prone is probably this is why he he is like oh I, I it's it's the like check please slash I yield my time. Right. Whether yeah. or not he's in a debate. Um, I think he's been taught like Joe, when you don't know what you're going to say, just pause. Yeah. Just pull the plug. Pull the right? plug. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's, he's hitting hyperspace is what he's doing. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's 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 but, your panic moment in the video game where you, where you just hit, hit the randomizer. He, but, he, but uh, it's also funny because he's pretending he's pretty good. This is somewhat slick because he's pretending that he's just overwhelmed by how how sad he is. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a good cover. Because he knows he was saying something about how hard it is, but he forgets. And then he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. And he, and, and this, this is the problem is that it's not it's not that he, he stutters or has gaps. He, he literally forgets what it is that he's saying in the middle of what he's saying, yeah. what he's saying regularly. And that, that's that's kind of more the issue. But that's just the beginning of what's so great about this clip. We have some more material. Artists helping in in New York with, uh, you know, mm -hmm. at the Javits Center. We, we have this capacity. But most of all, I'd be protecting our docs, our nurses and first responders, because if we lose them, mm -hmm. we are in real, real trouble. We should be we should be making those masks. We should be moving on those ventilators. We can do that. Why doesn't mm -hmm. he just act like a president? That's a stupid way to say it. You know, guess, Donald Trump really was asked. Wish he... Wait, so, sorry, a little more. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I probably best I don't. All right, let me ask you this. Donald Trump was asked. Again, we have a check, please moment. And also a kind of like, do you think I think he has something in his ear? I do. I think he has an earpiece. And so someone was like, but don't go there, Joe. I don't know why. I mean, or there's somebody like with semaphore behind him, you know what I mean? Like yeah. telling him, don't do that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, the irony is he was that, that was a perfectly fine answer. I, I know it's like the best, the most qualitative, uh, substantive thing he said, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, he's, he's got an issue. With the, I, I don't know how people we're not cherry that, picking. But. If we were cherry picking, I would have I would have demanded Matt not point out the Ebola thing or the. Uh, other right. Stuff. Yeah, we're not. And Trump, Trump was immediately tweeting out these clips. So we, that right. gives you an indication of what how this is going to be used politically. Yeah, exactly. I know. We, we should talk about this. The inappropriateness and weirdness of Biden's statements has, has put him into a place where basically it's it's difficult to to say who's saying what if you just remove the, the you know, the video. So there's there's a test that yeah. uh, we want to we want to uh, put us both through to see if we can correctly identify yeah. the, the author of these statements. So what, what do we have, Katie? We have a very fun game that um, I believe was in Bloomberg, actually, ironically, which is about it's a who said it, Don uh, Trump or Biden. We're going to have our, uh, our, our esteemed producer, Dan, re read off these questions and see if Katie and I can get them right. First one. Quote, I stopped in Singapore to meet with a guy named Lee Kuan Yew, who most foreign policy experts around the world say is the wisest man in the Orient. Was that Joe Biden or Donald Trump? I'm going to say Biden. I'm going to say Trump. It was Biden. 
Oh, fuck. <laughs> Shit. I got Biden, Dar. Biden used the outdated term for Asia when referring to the former Man. prime minister of Singapore during a get out the vote rally in Iowa in 2014. See, I was I was more uh, keying on the bragging about yeah. knowing the cool right. person. Right. But right. So this is one of the things that we learn as we do this. What 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 they share, the hyperbole, right. the bragging and the um, offensiveness. Bring it on. I'm getting, getting yeah. into the spirit. OK, go ahead. From Phoenix to Flagstaff, from Mesa to Yuma, to the Red Rocks of Sedona, this great state was settled by some of the toughest men and toughest and most beautiful women ever to walk the face of the earth. Trump. Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Donald Trump. Matt, what say ye? Trump. Yeah, it was Trump. Uh -huh. OK. Whew. Although it could have been, that's another thing, could have been that too, because the women stuff is weird with both of them. Yeah, and Biden has said, you know, the, the beautiful thing has come up with Biden. I think that's what they were trying to do, trying to catch us in the right, word beautiful right. there. So. Tricky. All right, here we go. It's good, right? It's good again. Quote, I think I probably have a much higher IQ than you do, I suspect. I'd be <laughs> delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours, if you'd like, Frank. <laughs> if, if Frank's name was John or something, I would say it's Biden. But if his name is Frank, I'll say it's Trump. I'm going to say this is this is Biden. It's Biden. Yes. Wow. It was so obviously Trumpian that they were trying to catch us. I see. Oh, but that's not fair. No, you can't. We have to play this as if we don't. Look, Matt, if you want to compare IQs with me, we can do that. But <laughs> we have to play this. You know, we can't overthink it or else it doesn't work. And this was Biden made the remarks responding to a question about his academic record during a campaign stop in New Hampshire during his 1987 presidential oh, campaign. Right, because right, as you pointed out last week or before in the show, he lied about his law school. Yeah, I was yeah. top of my class, all this stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, next one. Quote, I'm not sorry for anything that I have ever done. <laughs> this is great because it really could be one. <laughs> I have never been disrespectful intentionally to a man or a woman. Biden. Trump. Biden. Ugh. Katie, you're winning, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, fuck. Were we keeping score? I think she, Katie's got three for four, and I'm, I'm yeah. two for four. All right. Time for a comeback. On. Yeah. So next one. Quote, I punched my music teacher because I didn't think he knew anything about music, and I almost got expelled. I'm not proud of that, but it's clear evidence that even early on, I had a tendency to stand up and make my opinions known in a very forceful way. Biden, because that comes from a book, I think. And Trump has not written one yet, which is surprising because he has so many other. Trump's written books. Oh, yeah, I guess so. The art. Yeah. What am I thinking? Sorry about that, Trump. I owe you a big apology, Donald. Uh, oh, so I can't maybe... remember. See, I've read Biden's book and I can't remember the music teacher portion. So I'm going to say that's Trump. Yeah, I'll say I'm going to switch now to Trump based on that. Donald Trump. No. <laughs> All right. He, did he take his symbols and, and uh, boxes? <laughs> like like the, mon <laughs> the monkey? Yeah. yeah. The, monkey, the, yeah ape, exactly. the ape, you're right. It's a primate. And this was in his 1987 book, The Art of the Deal. Nice. I, yeah, The Art of the Deal. There you go. That's great. We should, we'll play more of those next week or next episode. One more. One more. Okay, one more. That's into it. Okay, last one. Quote, I cannot believe that a Frenchman visiting Kiev went back home and didn't say he discovered the most beautiful women in the world. That's my observation. It's certain you have so many beautiful women. Trump. Biden. Biden. Yes. Shit. 
Now we're tied, I think, or there's four for six. There we go. All right. Now, coincidentally, Matt wants to stop playing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think we should cancel the election. Two out of three, actually, three out of four. Right, right. Um, (laughs) Well, we should cancel the elections. Yeah, we'll play more of these next week. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking speaking of vice presidents, we have. person who, among other things, uh, was the director of uh, Vice about uh, Dick Cheney and uh, has a, a biography and a resume that's so ridiculously long. It's like it's it's embarrassing, actually. Yeah. He's, he's been the writer, director or somehow behind producing so many different iconic movies. And uh, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, Step Brothers, Anchorman, the Big Short. The Big Short. Short, yeah, he's and he's got some amazing projects coming up, which we're going to talk about, including a new show based on Parasite. So this is a really cool talk. An Epstein, for, an Epstein project. Oh yeah, he's got an Epstein project, which is unbelievable. He's going to talk about that too. So uh, without further ado, let's let's uh, let's get to our discussion with Adam McKay. Hey Hi. guys. Hi. How are you doing, Mr. McKay? I am doing good. How are you guys doing? Terrific. Thanks. Thanks for making time for us. Really appreciate it. Well, I, you you certainly don't have to say thanks for making time. That is not a problem. <laughs> yeah. True. Thank God for small favors. We, we have yeah. lots of time now. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. Not not a problem at all. And I'm a huge fan. So happy to do it. Oh, oh thanks. Like, so are like, we of yours? Yeah. Yeah, your 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 movies have uh, gotten me through many many, uh, many bad days over over the years. So <laughs> we're just gonna dive right in. Uh, first question I have is: Could you even make a movie like the campaign now? Like, in other words, is is real life campaigning in the election cycles of twenty sixteen and twenty twenty have they gotten so absurd and stressful in reality that the humor like it, it's rendered that kind of parody and comedy almost. Uh, irrelevant to people i mean could you do that now i mean here's here's what's so funny so when or it's not funny in a very very dark way we were scouting a new movie in boston when this whole coronavirus thing hit and the movie is about an asteroid is going to hit earth and destroy earth and the two scientists who have discovered it, uh, Jennifer Lawrence is going to play the Ph.D. candidate, who's the one who makes the discovery, and we're still casting the professor. And the whole idea is that the president doesn't really understand the science and kind of soft sells it, and the urgency is kind of lost. And so these two scientists have to go on a media tour and kind of get caught up in the social media vortex and TV shows, and they're just trying to say, hey, we're all going to die. So while we're scouting that movie, this is all going on with the coronavirus, and we're seeing clips of Trump saying, ah, oh, it's nothing, and we're seeing the right-wing media say it's a hoax. And meanwhile, the thing is proliferating in this frightening way, and we all had to like run and jump on a plane and get out of town and come back to Los Angeles. And so as we're scouting this movie, which is a comedy, it's a dark comedy, uh, the actual reality is happening, and then Trump is doing it in a way that is so much bigger and more cartoonish than our character in our script. Right. That you're exactly right. It's 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 just blowing through all parody, all satire. Um, it's existing in this kind of Ralph Steadman like zone uh, that's so uh, grotesque and preposterous and cartoonish that it, it is. It's it's muting comedy. You're, you're totally right. Like the campaign 
plays dry now, except for maybe the scene where he accidentally punches a baby. That's still pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was we'll always have baby punching. Right. That's, that's <laughs> the one scene you could actually imagine. I mean, you can imagine the whole thing happening, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. But also, uh, I wanna... although if you, if you told me that, that like, if I woke up one morning and there was a headline that there was a campaign event and Trump swung around because he thought someone was grabbing him and he punched a baby and right. everyone was cool with it. I wouldn't be that shocked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very rude baby. Very nasty baby. <laughs> but I also want to give a, you know, credit to the Dems because uh, Joe Biden himself, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but he tweeted out, if you're, you're feeling healthy, not showing symptoms and not at risk of being exposed. Please vote on Tuesday. Uh, so, well, I mean, I, I think we have to talk about when you talk about how I mean, the, the, the two polarities that we're caught between right now, it's it's really come into stark contrast and, and relief recently. This kind of Coke Pepsi yeah. political system <laughs> that we're ping ponging between where you have these just absurdly incompetent big money lapdogs in Trump, in W. Bush, in Reagan. And then on the other side, you have these fairly competent, but at the same time, totally corporatist, big money shills in Bill Clinton, in Biden, in Kerry, in Obama, uh, to some degree. And, and we just are constantly getting knocked back and forth. It makes me think of the movie election, how, you know, Matthew Broderick's character drinks Pepsi and the whole movie is framed as this Coke Pepsi thing where they're really non choices. Um, and I get it that they're different. They definitely are. I mean, a Democrat can handle a, a viral outbreak, but at the same time, is still going to neoliberals are still going to sell out the working class, and then the working class going to get frustrated and have to go for the clownish, cartoonish right wing character, and so on and so on and so on. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So um, it's really genius. I, I don't think there was any like star chamber meeting where someone planned all this out, but clearly the system is. Mutated uh, into this, and, it, and boy, does it work well. Yeah, but even Tom Perez, I mean, urging people to vote and pun- threatening to punish states' uh, delegate numbers. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of feel like up until this week, I would have totally agreed with with the idea that Dems can handle a, a pandemic better, and I think they can. But up this until is the this, point that it conflicts with their self. Yeah, right. Like I think. In, I mean, as, you're. By the way, you're 100 percent correct for the. First time we're really starting to stretch the competent part of it because Joe Biden is just like he's a step more competent than Trump. There's no question, but much less so than Obama and Bill Clinton. Uh, You're right. We're starting to go into an interesting territory now where they really did pick the one person out of that whole field of Dems where it's it's barely more competent. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I was just interviewing someone, Absher Omar, who works for the Sanders campaign. And he was telling me he was in Chicago uh, Tuesday night and he saw people standing way closer than six feet from each other. He saw people going into the booths and not and, and not using the hand sanitizer. They would wait like a couple of people before wiping it down. And it's just, yeah, that really, I, I mean, I, Doesn't I feel naive. surprise but, me yeah, at all. Was, yeah, it's, I couldn't believe it's it. It's voting. Right. And by the way, and I, I certainly supported Bernie Sanders, but what a pathetic state that the, the, the real left wing is in, in this country, 
when the only real guy you can put out there, I mean, I guess somewhat Elizabeth Warren, although as that mm. went on, it got mm. less and less mm. so. But the only guy you can find is a 75-year-old Democratic Socialist from Vermont who just had a heart attack. Like, that's the only true progressive that they can put out to run for president. Uh, God bless Bernie Sanders, first and foremost. But yeah. second off, like, what happened to the left wing in this country? It, it's remarkable. AOC is too young, so you can't talk about her. It, it, is, it is amazing. And, and you know, the, the collapse, the, the lack of a real opposition is, set, is setting the stage for this general election, which is going to be Trump versus Biden. I mean, is, is this going to be funny or is it just going to be horrible? And is where's the dividing line? Between funny, funny or die, to quote the name of your series <laughs> or both. But it's like uh, the it, and miserable and horrible thing. Like, I, I can't tell whether it's going to be whether it's going to be amusing or just horrif horrifying or both. I don't know. I, I, I mean, you guys have probably read these pieces that have come out recently. David Wallace Wells wrote a great one for the New York uh, magazine. And there was one in the Atlantic uh, putting forth the idea that we're the first rich failed state. <laughs> and and I, I actually don't think that's too far fetched. I really don't. I, I kind of I, I mean, I don't have much hope for the federal government at this point. I it's I, I really felt like I heard the knee pop during the mm. W. Bush years. I really felt like when Citizens United uh, with the Iraq war, with the things that they were getting away with that we all just rolled on like we were going to return to 1996 any day now. Uh, and then you went through the Obama years of just raw gridlock. And yet all of us just still hoping it's going to be 1996 again. You know, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's depressing, but at the same time, you have to remove yourself from it. It's just remarkably effective how they, it's all just given over our democracy to, uh, to an oligarchy and big money. It's, it's really just breathtaking how effective it is. Can you share, um, I was listening to one of your interviews uh, that you did on The Hive, the Vanity Fair podcast, and sure. you shared this really great analogy about um, uh, Cheney, and uh, Trump and a, I bet, I believe a jewelry store. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I can't, I, I've created. thrown around so many analogies, but I can probably guess what I said, which is there's two ways to rob a jewelry store. Is that what I said? Well, you were saying uh, that Cheney is the, 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 the robber, the thief who enters in, he like puts a stethoscope uh, next to the to the safe, figures out the the combination, takes the jewelry out, leaves the door open, and then Trump is like the dog that comes in and shits all over. <laughs> that the, about the right. Jewelry store, yeah. The damage was already done. Or you could also say this: Cheney's the guy who robs the jewelry store with the stethoscope, who comes in through the back wall and leaves, and the next morning they find it's all gone. Whereas Donald Trump is the guy who robs the jewelry store by going into the jewelry store, taking a crap on the floor. So everyone runs out. Then he steals the jewelry like it's two different ways to rob the place. Um, but I, I think the bigger point probably I was making is that the damage was already done, that, yeah, the door has been left open. The place has already been robbed and a, a deer wanders into the store and everyone's mad at the deer. Right. Yeah. Which is refreshing because, I mean, I feel like in Hollywood, I don't know if you feel a lot of peer pressure to to pine for the days of George Bush, you know, like Ellen had him I, dancing on the show and 
uh, I didn't know that Ellen gave uh, Trump and Melania a, a chandeliered stroller. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it makes me very sad with the W. Bush stuff where people are like, we're talking about how Trump makes you long for those days. It, it reminds me of that, that documentary, Act of Killing, which is so brilliant about how the, the genocide of East Timor has just been totally normalized in the union leaders uh, and how it just becomes integrated into your culture and... You know, I don't even think we've fully dealt with the Vietnam War, let alone the Iraq War. It's just, I think our country's such a consumer society that it's all about making the customer feel right. And you certainly don't want to talk to your customer about, you know, a million people dead in Iraq and two million people dead in Vietnam. And uh, so it's 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 really just all of it's kind of remarkable. It, it forces you to take a step back and just look at it like a Keystone Cops five-car collision um, and to almost view it from an audience point of view because you really don't have any other choice. Actually, I wanted to, I wanted to ask about that because you you made The Big Short, which is a terrific movie about Wall Street and what happened in the, in the 2008 financial crisis. But it was, how difficult was it to get that movie made and where you're telling a story that's about something completely horrifying and it's also complicated? There, it must be very difficult to to convince Hollywood that that's going to be a, a subject that people are going to go want to go see, and it, but you you, ma you managed it. How did how did that work out? Uh, you know, it, it's there's a certain amount of fairness in Hollywood in the sense that if you get big name actors and your mm. script reads pretty well, they will make the movie. So we were at Paramount, and I turned in the script. And the guy who was in charge at that point was a guy named Adam Goodman. And he just said, like, look, this is great. But if you get a cast and you can make it for a number, we'll do it. And we got very lucky. We got a crazy cast. You know, we were able to get Christian Bale and Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling and uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, yeah. So once you get that cast and, and that really a lot of credit goes to those actors who read that script and thought, oh, this is something I definitely want to do. Um Without them signing on, we don't ever get to make that movie. So there are a couple hard and fast rules in Hollywood that, that hold regardless of, you know, whatever point of view you're expressing or, or how complex something is. If you can make it entertaining and you can give it some buoyancy and some drama and you get the right actors and you get the right price, they will make the movie. You've made so many iconic uh, comedies. I mean, you, your IMDb page is like is longer than some of my books. It's unbelievable how many things you've produced <laughs> and directed and written. It's, am it's amazing. Is it difficult though? Do you, do you get stereotyped as the comedy guy when you want to move into something that's more serious? And is, is that an impediment to getting a project that you want to make? Because you, you, you made this amazing shift to doing the big short after doing Anchorman and stuff, you know, all, all those other movies. Yeah, it was tricky. It it was tricky at first. I tried to get uh, the Garth Ennis comic, uh, The Boys Made. Uh, I wanted to do a rated R superhero movie uh, where the superheroes were partying cocaine addicts uh, <laughs> who were at the whim of uh, the government and and uh, really more about PR and doing more damage than good. And we had a really great script. and But it was a little too early on the curve of doing the grown-up superhero movie. They weren't quite doing those yet. And I think in that case, the fact that I was known as the comedy guy hurt me. Uh, whereas maybe if I had been Chris Nolan or someone like that, they would have just been like, oh, of course, we'll do this, but I couldn't get that made. I took it to every place in town 
and the combination of the material and my background as a comedy guy, I do think that hurt me. Um, but once again, when you get the right project, people will jump with you. So the, the big short was the one that started opening up other, uh, other possibilities for me and sort of changing that narrative. And it just came down to the, like the script and the actors signed on and the budget was right. So, you know, you see it with Todd Phillips getting to do the movies he's been doing like Joker, something you wouldn't really think the guy who did, uh, you know, road trip and, and, uh, the hangover movies would get to do, but when the project lines up, they'll give you the shot. Thank God. And uh, we just produced a movie with uh, Lorene Scafaria, Hustlers, which if you look oh, at her yeah. other movies. I just saw that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was great. I love that. I, I love that. And I just saw that you had uh, produced it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that was a case where Lorene, you really think of her as this kind of filmmaker. And then she had this idea that she wanted to do, which... It's almost like a Scorsese, uh, women-centric Scorsese tale, and uh, and man, did she just kill it! She just did a great job, and uh, so yeah, when the project lines up, they'll let you do it. That's the good news. Jennifer Lopez was so good in that, by the way. I just gotta say, Wasn't she great. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, all credit to Loreen on that. Loreen right away was like, "We got to get Jennifer Lopez," and I was like, "Oh, really? I didn't think of her." And she was like, "No, no, I'm telling you," and she was so right. It was so nice to see a movie like that. Directed by a woman, so yeah. Well, that that was something I was really proud of with our our company that Will and I had together. Gary Sanchez was we were able to uh, launch. God, I think we had about six different women directors that we were able to produce their films. Leslie Headland. We did a, a another movie that my wife directed. Actually, Welcome to Me. Uh, we just had a bunch of great women directors. Lorene, obviously. We did a movie called Oh Lucy with a great Japanese director, woman director. And uh, that was a big emphasis with that that company. We have a new one now, but we still want that to be a, a big part of what we do. You've got some amazing projects coming forward. Can you talk a little bit about it? I think you've, you've got a Parasite series that you're working on. And then there's also a, a Jeffrey Epstein project. That, how, how does that? Also a Parasite of sorts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's, I mean, there was just this shift that happened. You guys saw it happen where the world got so unhinged and strange and dramatic and all these things that maybe back in the nineties we were worried about came to fruition. And I just, we, we kind of just made a decision. And with our new company, uh, we're called hyper object industries. Uh, we just really decided to just dive into this this world and tell these stories, uh, regardless of genre. Some of them may be funny, some may dis be disturbing, some may be science fiction. Who knows? Um, but we just decided to ignore genre, and uh, and out of that came the Jeffrey Epstein story. That was a story I was I was barking about uh, years before. Uh, it, Julie Brown did an amazing job cracking the story. I was kept talking to friends of mine who were journalists saying, why isn't someone digging into this? This is crazy that this guy got away with it. And then Julie Brown did a masterful job of breaking the story and we were able to get in touch with her. So we, we've been uh, working on a podcast uh, called Broken that's about to relaunch in a couple weeks where we're investigating further on that story. And uh, we're going to do a, a mini series for uh, HBO. And we're really trying to focus more on the victims, on the justice that hasn't been served since uh, Epstein died, and really not let, letting this story go away. And then we're working on another project with David Wallace Wells, actually, uh, his book, Uninhabitable Earth, about global warming. 
and we're going to do a, a Black Mirror style anthology series oh, on wow. global warming where every episode, some of them may be funny, some may be disturbing, some may be just, uh, but each one of them kind of a mini movie. And so I'm going to do the first episode of that, write and direct it. And uh, we're talking to a couple other really interesting filmmakers about jumping on board. Uh, and uh, can't wait to get that going. That's for HBO Max. We actually have a show premiering tonight called Motherland, yeah. Fort Salem. That's uh, that kind of, I guess you'd call it like a YA uh, alternative history of the U.S. where witches were real during uh, the Salem witch, witch trials and they cut a deal with them and the witches became our military. And it's this wild show uh, from Elliot Lawrence who created Claws and uh, wrote Welcome to Me. Really, really cool, imaginative show. It sounds like, although there are so many terrible, horrible things happening in this country, this is kind of a golden age for a filmmaker, right? I mean, there's just such a, an, an enormous need for content across all these different platforms and you know movies are doing great and and it is kind of a good time to be making movies isn't it and it seems like you're taking full advantage of it i mean you're, you're making amazing things i i don't think there's ever been a time like this in los angeles and in tv slash movies slash streaming whatever you want to call it there's never been this many outlets there's never been this many shows made i i saw one estimate that there's 550 scripted original shows being produced right now. Uh, the amount of movies, I mean, I, I, I'm old enough. I remember in the late 70s, early 80s, where there'd be a new movie every other week. There wasn't even a new movie every week. And now there's like 16 new movies come out every week. So it, it definitely is a golden age. There's never been a time like this where the hunger and demand is greater and and specifically for original shows that really do challenge the audience. I mean, I don't think we ever could have made the show Succession uh, ten years ago, and uh, and and that's a testament to how sophisticated audiences have become and how high the demand is. I mean, I thought that show Watchmen on HBO was just incredible and challenging and imaginative and you never would have seen a show like that 20 years ago or it would have been the only one of its kind right i mean like now there's there's sort of a universal understanding that audiences are sophisticated they can handle difficult material yeah you had twin peaks you're right there would occasionally be a show that would pop out that would break the mold like twin peaks but there was nothing else like it and there was still a debate when Magnum PI, which was incredibly difficult and challenging and hard to watch and so real. I mean, Tom Selleck in Hawaii solving crimes and all of us. <laughs> so gritty. Hard to watch. Neorealist, yeah. <laughs> I like that show. <laughs> I think Costa Gravis. Costa Gravis directed that pilot, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I've always wanted to ask, and I can't let you go without asking this. What, what was your source material for Anchorman? I mean, I don't know if you, I, I, I grew up, my father was a, a reporter in his 70s, in a, an affiliate, a local affiliate in the 70s. So that was like my childhood, that movie. Uh, it was, it was, a, it affected me on a personal level. Uh, did I love of, it. Yeah. Did anyone Were you triggered? I, I was totally triggered by that movie. <laughs> It came from two sources. It came from Farrell watched an interview with a, uh, a an old Philadelphia anchor, Mort Krim, <laughs> talking about how awful they were to Jessica Savage, who was the first female anchor. And he was right. just 
in this incredibly hyper-avuncular voice saying, like, I'll be honest, I was a male chauvinist pig. <laughs> and Farrell and I just started laughing about what a-holes these guys right. must have been. Yet, when you saw them on TV, they came off like your friendly uncle who's going to tell you what the world's like. And then I grew up around Philly. And uh, Jim Gardner and the Action News team, they were like gods when I was a kid. So Farrell and I just started talking about these these memories from when we were children about how these these ridiculous local news teams were just larger than life. Um, so, yeah, Jessica Savage and then just all of our collective memories of when there were only four channels. And the, and the, the amazing uh, variety of facial hair from, from that, it was it's just it was so spot on. It was amazing. And the ridiculous names. And uh, yeah, and the, the, we had the guy in our little town outside Philly. Our sportscaster was Don Tollison, and he came to our little town. And I swear to God, 2,000 people showed up at the local park. And I got Don Tollison's autograph, and it was like... You know, the Pope had touched me. It was just like I, I was just breathless and red faced. Like I got Don Tollison's autograph, and uh, and we were just laughing about how it's just nothing like that anymore. There's you know seventy eight different news shows that are on at any given second, um, and then the sexism too. The idea that it was like a huge deal that it was a woman news anchor, uh, and and granted, there's still rampant sexism in the world and racism and all of that, but just how ridiculous it was that it was such a big deal that Jessica Savage had broken this line and that like uh, people couldn't hear the news from a woman, like was just felt like it was something from the 15th century, but it was only in the seventies. I mean, I remember those conversations and, and it would, that, that whole thing was very real for the people who worked in the business. <laughs> you, you remember when Dan Rather walked off the set, uh, when they, uh, it was actually the, the incident was when the Oklahoma City bombing happened and Connie Chung delivered the news because Dan was on vacation and they couldn't get him to the set fast enough and he completely exploded. Um, yes. Yeah. So that, that stuff is all very real. I mean, it, it was kind of it was totally on the money. I think Morley Safer, too, was really awful to Barbara Walters. I think that was the other story I heard was like Barbara Walters was one of those early pioneers. And the guys were just terrible and like just big babies. Um, so, yeah, that was the joke was just these guys who looked like the ultimate voice of authority acting like giant babies just made us laugh and uh, and felt like to the world and style was just so enjoyable. And sure enough, we got all those actors in those mustaches and that hair. And we I swear to God, we could have made a 10 hour movie. I just want to ask also about the, you have a parasite project coming. Can you tell us that I was obviously that was best picture this year. What, what's, what's, how's that going to come out? That was crazy. That was, uh, I, I'm such a fan of Bong Joon-ho's and have been since his very first movie. And, uh, I, that was just an incoming call. They're like Bong Joon-ho, director Bong wants to meet with you. I'm like, what? Wow. And he came and met with us and sat down and was like, yeah, I want to do this show and I want to do it with you. And I was like, this is crazy. And he was a fan of, of uh big short and succession and vice and he's just like uh you know he he saw that we were dealing with issues of class and uh and he wants to spin it off into an original miniseries so uh i've met with him a couple times already and we're coming up with an, a new sort of original story uh that's you know, it operates a little bit in the zone of the movie, but not like the movie. And we've already come up with some pretty cool stuff. Um, 
but yeah, that that was one of those dream uh, moments where just as a, the fanboy in me was doing backflips. Oh, I mean, his movies were Memories of Murder. I remember that was a great film. And yeah. oh, I just saw that. that movie. I just saw that Lincoln Center because they were doing a festival of his. Oh man, I miss. Uh, oh, Lincoln Center is doing it. That's right. They shut down that theater though. That's near Columbus Circle. Right? Oh, the Link- Lincoln Plaza. They shut down, which is like my favorite, the one on Sixty Third. But oh, this is at this is at like just Lincoln Center, as in the you know that has the opera and all that stuff, like Walter Reed and all that. that I can't one. believe they shut down that Lincoln. I Plaza know it's my favorite. I grew up on the I, Upper so, West Side, so yeah. Oh, you got to be kidding me! So that's yeah. your home theater. Yeah. Uh, I just I remember seeing Knights of Cabiria. They re-released oh, wow. that there. And that was back in the day, you know, the movie's old, so they used to do the credits up top. And I'll yeah. never forget, they that movie finished, and they just go, you know, you know, fine at the end, and uh, uh, the terrible pronunciation of, uh, of the Italian finished, or end. But uh, anyway, so the movie just ends, and all the lights come up immediately, and it was at a packed theater of people just sobbing. I don't know yeah. if you remember the end of Night's Cabiria, but it's just the most heart-wrenching, beautiful... Uh, ending ever, and I was in a crowd of 300 people all just weeping. Uh, it was one of the more incredible memories. So my friend told me they closed it. It was like, yeah. oh. Yeah, that was very upsetting. Katie, do you have anything else to ask? Yes, two questions related to Vice. Uh, does that change the way you watch, like, Dick Cheney footage? Like, do you have a different visceral feeling, like, that you know him on some other level? And then, have you read any of Sisters, the Lynn Cheney novel? <laughs> I have a copy of it. I uh, I actually found a copy uh, wow. online. They're very they're very hard to get your hands on. But yeah, I read the whole book. I read everything. I mean, wow. I spent a whole year on that movie, reading every article, every book, every interview. We actually hired our uh, we got a journalist uh, to go around the country and do original interviews for us. We found a bunch of stuff out that we couldn't find anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, what we noticed with that movie was there wasn't kind of that definitive Dick Cheney book. There were a lot of great books like Angler and uh, a few others that were really helpful, but they would all deal with certain aspects of Cheney or a certain period of Cheney. So um, that was a case where really the the movie was adapted from about nine different books uh, and interviews. Uh, So yeah, whenever I see Cheney, I definitely, I, I mean, I really kind of lived in the guy's life for like a year. And uh, I definitely feel a familiarity and I'm always curious. We always have theories about what's going on in the family with the daughters and, you know, how much is Liz checking in with them for decisions she makes. And uh, I mean, from what I've been told, Mary still hasn't reconciled with her sister. So Uh. we're always curious about that, if that'll ever that wound will ever heal. And uh, the one story I did hear was that uh, a friend of Christian Bale's was at a party in Virginia and Cheney was there because we were dying to hear if he ever saw the movie. And she walked up to him. She was a journalist and, and said to Dick Cheney, like, Mr. Vice President, I'm actually friends with Christian Bale. Is there anything you want to tell him? And he just looked over his shoulder and he said, yeah, you tell him he's a dick. And, <laughs> and so Bale so tells me the story and Bale says he hears the story and he laughs and he goes, oh my God, Cheney does have a sense of humor. And his friend said, no, no, he wasn't kidding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that has to make the whole project worth it for, for everybody, doesn't it? Every bit of it. That was a hard one, man. And I'll tell you, when I heard that, I was like, just that i'm happy with <laughs> matt are you going to pitch uh D- deflate gate the movie no no please I don't, I don't, I don't. please 
<laughs> well, how about uh, now he's gone to Tampa Bay? That would be the ending of the movie. Would be uh, you'd bring up the uh, end. Uh, where are they nows? Tom Brady <laughs> now right. resides in Tampa Bay, Florida, where he toils as the quarterback for the seven and nine Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah, right. yeah I like it. Uh, I like yeah. it. Eleven touchdowns, twenty-seven interceptions. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that would be. That would be uh, and you shoot it him. Shoot it in black and white with like a lone cello score. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. I was saying it should be like a the. Oh yeah, that's how it came up. We were talking about this. I know nothing about sports. I know that you do, um, and you play sports, right? Um, I basketball. Yeah, although basketball, now yeah. I'm in my fifties, so barely. But yes. Uh, but I don't know anything about sports, so we do this thing where I pretend to know about sports. And we were talking about Deflategate, and I think that he was. On what well, wrongly accused, so I thought there could be like a ru- a hurricane type of movie made about him, about Brady. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. you'd have like to stretch that. that really far. I don't know. Yeah, that, that would be tough to keep up. But, yeah. I mean, the tough thing is he was definitely aware of it. Was not wrongly accused, and they cheated several other times. I, I'm but besides not that, a fan. Parallel. I am so not a parallel. fan of the Patriots. You could tell we instantly, Matt and I, get very serious about the sports. <laughs> this is a Philly Boston thing going on here, right? So, yeah. You know, you guys know we have a, a show we're doing for HBO about the uh, Showtime Lakers. Uh, oh, I, wow. I directed the pilot for it, and it's very, very cool show that gets into, like, obviously there's a sports aspect to it, but also gets into issues of race and class and sexism and uh, all this great stuff. And, uh, uh, yeah, we just uh, we finished the pilot. HBO picked it up. Uh, it's going to be a three-season miniseries. Um, oh, that's uh, we fair. still haven't titled it. We have to come up with a title for it. But uh, very cool show that I that hopefully as a non-sports fan, I would, I would think you might like. Well, there's so much stuff there. I mean, the the the, the country, uh, urban, the dichotomy, the race thing, the East Coast, West Coast. Those personalities they legitimately hated each other in Boston and L.A. I think all that. Was uh, the Boston stuff is so good in the outline that the showrunner came up with. And there's the other cool thing too that you had this guy Jerry Buss, Dr. Jerry Buss, who hung out at the Playboy Mansion, always dated women that were like a you know half his age, yet his legacy is that women really took over the team that, you know, the the lone female lone woman owner in the NBA is Jeannie bus. And her right-hand man is, uh, Kurt Rambis's wife. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Linda Rambis, I think. And that really it's an organization now that's run by women. So it's a, it's a fascinating story. And the, the always that was there, the backbone of kind of the Lakers were these really strong women. This woman, Claire Rothman ran the facility and was incredible and brilliant. And, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very cool show. There's so many surprising things based on Jeff Perlman's book, uh, Showtime, which is an incredible read. Wow. I don't know how you have all this time to do it. I I feel guilty just listening to all this, but uh, (laughs) amazing. Um, Well, uh, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. You know you're busy and and hope to talk to you again soon sometime. My absolute pleasure. Anytime. And uh, like I said, I'm a huge fan. Keep doing what you guys are doing. Thanks. Oh, are you feeling the burn? Just final question. Feeling the burn this time? Feeling the burn as in the Bernie Sanders burn yeah. or, oh, uh, I don't know, man. I was heartbroken. That moment with Joe Biden, I hate to end on a downer, but where Joe Biden's like, Bernie tried to talk about how this viral epidemic actually brings out issues of class inequality and problems with the country and health care. And 
Joe Biden just said, uh, what, you're going to fix the virus problem with a revolution? Oh my God, yeah. I just was like, so I don't know. Yeah, God bless Bernie Sanders, but I'm not feeling the burn right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling a dull ache. <laughs> yeah. And I got to say, I love I love Elizabeth Warren, but what was that about, man? You got to no, endorse yeah. him. No, I just she lost. I, that really broke my heart. I, I, I wasn't even mad. I was like heartbroken. That was oh, really my. I was mad by then. I don't mean that. You can edit this part out where it's the downer ending. But uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I really that that Elizabeth Warren thing was really like that hurt. That hurt a lot because yeah. I met with her and I really yeah, she I was believe so good she's on a stuff. strong act. But what the was that about, stuff. man? I think that there's nothing like running a presidential campaign and there was a moment where it really seemed like it could be Warren and then it faded when she bailed on the universal health care so right. she wouldn't do it to year three it was like they pulled the plug on the whole campaign and I think it was the pollsters I because all of a sudden she started pushing these buttons that are these buttons on Bernie where it was like the Bernie bro thing and like you've got to be practical and and yeah. it just reeked and the to me ac- accusation yeah which yeah on her, which is you hate to see it. I was really glad, honestly, it backfired, though, because it was so disingenuous. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just I, the whole thing was just it's what the system does, though, because I really do think at her root, Warren is really impressive and a great fighter and really smart and gets the big picture. Yeah, but it's just smart. this corrupt system grinds people down. Anyway, anyway, like I said, edit all that out if you want. But, <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, I no, like that. Right. So, yeah, it's great. Uh, Adam, thank you so much. Yeah, we really thank appreciate you so it. Much. Yep. All right, you guys stay healthy, stay good. Thanks, you, you too. too. Come stay back safe. whenever Bye. you want. Bye. Any anytime, seriously. Great. Give me yeah. a holler. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. That was great. Matt, that was your Ani DeFranco. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, I know. I know. I, was, out. I, I mean, I love Adam really McKay too. But cartoon the, hearts for coming out yeah, the whole exactly, time. Yeah. That yeah. was bad. No, yeah. he's, he's, he's so amazing. nice too. He's so smart. He's so funny. He's amazing. He has a, a background in improv. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. And then he wrote it SNL. And uh, yeah, if I had that many movies under my belt, I would be I would be way more of an asshole than he is. Yeah, I know. And that's right? hard because just kidding. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I had to. Nat is a very nice guy. Sorry to ruin your image. Your style. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was great. And um, you guys just want to give you another chance to if you want it, you want some useful idiots merch. Mm-hmm. Matt has this shirt on him. And what I have is and I wear this all the time and I'm probably need to wash it. But there you go. Nice. Excellent. Right? And, and as I always tell listeners and viewers, look at this. Ready? Side pocket. Very nice. Pocket. So you can put your hand sanitizers in there and your, um, your uh, what was it? A gut temp thermometer gun. And remember, right. guys, I'm patenting that the idea of the thermometer actual gun, the weapon, right. right? You take the thermometer from a distance with the gun, then depending on the results, boom. So where can people find this, this, uh, this merch? And we'll be putting links uh, in the descriptions to our YouTube on the anywhere you get your podcast. It'll be in the description there and we'll be tweeting it out as well. Yeah. And remember, guys, rate and review this show, because if you don't, you know what happens? We've said this before, but we got it's been a couple episodes since we reminded you. You you let Pod Save America potentially win. Right. Yeah. We can't have that. we, We can't have that. Especially yeah. in this world of uh, this, you know, we're living through a pandemic and that's a, the last thing we need right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, don't watch, don't watch or listen to Pots of America. And I won't make a, a coronavirus based joke about that right now, even though one is going through my mind. What is it? What is it? No, I won't. I just won't. I won't go there. Let's not go there. Look Let's at you. Just, such an Actually, you know what? Go, go, listen to Pod Save America. You know, we're all, we're all in this together. I Let's, quit. I quit. <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they're fellow uh, Americans. We're all trying to get through this, support them as well in this, in this dark time. And you know what? I'll take, I'm going to, I'll take that and raise you. Find the Chinese equivalent of that. Find Pod Save China and listen to that. Pod That's Save China. Unity. If, if there isn't a Pod Save China, we should create one right and now. go listen to them. Uh, so anyway, thanks for listening in. If you want to be involved with the next show, send a video question to yeah. one of us uh, on Twitter. And, and use the uh, hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Yeah, UsefulIdiotsPod. Useful Matt's Twitter handle is MTIEB, and I'm KT Helps. That's in letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Great. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.